Hi, this is Kean Prendival, and welcome to a special commemorative episode of Rupture Radio. On Friday, July 2nd, Daniel Rayner O'Connor Lysett passed away at the age of 80, following 50 years as a socialist and Marxist activist and historian in Ireland. Uh, Rayner was originally from a well-to-do family in North Wales and came to Ireland in the 60s to study in Trinity College. Uh, He got involved in left-wing politics then and became one of Ireland's most well-known and respected Marxist historians and thinkers. He was a Trotskyist and a supporter of the Fort International for most of his life and was a a member of various different socialist groups here in Ireland over the years. One of his most well-known works uh, was his pamphlet on the Limerick Soviet, which was one of the first accounts of this fascinating story I heard. He helped to uncover and popularise this forgotten revolution. In 2019, I got to interview Rainer for a special podcast documentary I produced on the Limerick Soviet, which we republished here on Rupture Radio a few months back. I'll include a link to that in the episode notes. When I heard Rainer died, I went back and dug out the complete interview with Rainer, which we are now sharing for the first time. Rainer was not only a fascinating author and thinker, he was a thoroughly nice and friendly person. Not only was he delighted to be interviewed, he actually invited me to have dinner with him and his partner Anya afterwards as well. And everyone I've talked to about him says the same. He was always willing to talk politics, to collaborate with others and to work together towards our shared socialist goal. He was through and through a non-sectarian socialist activist. And I think that is summarised for me in his final appeal at the end of this interview to people interested in socialism. He doesn't merely say, join my party, rally around my flag. Instead, he says, join a revolutionary party and advocate within it for a united front of all the revolutionary left. Just a note, when this interview was recorded, it wasn't planned to release it in its entirety. So we jump back and forth a bit on some things and some points are completely skipped over. Um, If you want to hear the full story in context and structured, I'd encourage you to go back and check out the full documentary. Um, But I do think that this interview largely stands on its own two feet as well. The other thing to note is that this interview is all recorded on the one mic, which was closer to Rainer. So my questions were mainly picked up um, on that main mic, and there's a bit of background noise there for when, when you come to those questions. But I think it's all listenable and well worth listening to. So without further ado, RIP to Rainer Lysett and condolences to his family and loved ones. And I pass you over to the interview from 2019. Well, do you want to start by saying your 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 name and some of the, the books you've written? I am Rainer O'Connor Lysett, D.R. O'Connor Lysett, author of the story of the Limerick Soviet, the subject of uh, discussion tonight. Also of um, a great great Irish revolution, an investigation of the revisionist and illusions about the said revolution, and uh, most recently uh, from the GPO to the Winter Palace. How a workers' revolution was lost and how a workers' revolution was won. That's a comparative study of the Easter Rising and the October Revolution in Russia. And, um, the second, um, I also written various articles and studies and published a few of Connolly's suppress- works that were previously suppressed. One of the points you make in the introduction to your pamphlet um, mm-hmm. is that uh, both the... Uh, 
original historians or the, the mainstream historians and the revisionist historians at the time both shared a common misconception or a, or a common mistelling. They, they both ignored an important part of the history of Ireland between 1916 and 1923. Uh, um, what, what is that sort of common misunderstanding or, or what do they miss? They see it in, uh, in essentially military terms uh, and uh, purely on the basis of the, the struggle of the uh, bourgeois, Irish bourgeoisie and petty, petty bourgeoisie against the, uh, uh, to overthrow the British colonial state. And that, of course, is is what it was, what it turned out to be, but the point was that underneath there was this uh, struggle uh, of the of workers also to well, it was possible for them to establish their state. The objective circumstances for for this existed. It was the uh, subjective problems that. Uh, failed them in the end. But first key point to remember is that in on the 21st of January 1919, as everybody knows, every school, probably every school kid in Ireland knows, uh, outside, apart from the union, probably the unionists perhaps, but I dare say they've done that as an awful warning. Doyle Aaron met for his first me- meeting uh, and, uh, of course, uh, a couple of peelers were killed in uh, Sola Hedbeg, and, you know, that's a city. But also, in Limerick, a man called Robert, also known as Bob or Bobby or Bertie Byrne, was found guilty of possessing a revolver. Now, this was, if you like, not really as much the beginning of uh, the Soviet, but it was the start of uh, a train of events that would lead to the Limerick Soviet. And in fact, it is symbolic. And uh, when we say that it was the chart of a train of events, we should also remember that Sola Hedbeg and Knock Long, so the two or two of the standard things in, uh, the, begin- in the history of the, of the um, Anglo-Irish War, these were two quite big uh, military events but really, through 1919, there weren't that many military events afterwards. In fact, what 1919, from the military point of view, was the period of phony war. Uh, there were about, I think there were four military actions in Tipperary, of the Tipperary Brigades in 1919, four of them, compared to over a, about a... 134 in the in the next year, 1920. So you see that uh, there was a, a difference. So that too was the start. Everything was starting off. And the question is, how? Why, why was it that uh, they managed to kick st- these? Str- that struggle was kick-started, whereas the uh, workers' struggle um, was limited to certain isolated events and never got beyond 1919, uh, the 1919 level. And in fact, the end of 1920 and into 1921 was uh, sort of almost in suspended animation. One of the key things that I wanted to speak to you about is why it didn't succeed. 
or w- w- what went wrong. So you had a situation where for, for two weeks, the walkers ran the city, uh, um, they printed their own money, uh, um, uh, uh, but it, it, didn't, it didn't go beyond that. In the end, it went down to a defeat in many ways, you know. Um, so maybe just to talk about you, you talk you described the situation in your pamphlet. It was a situation of dual power. What what does that? What do you mean by? by well, there was dual power. In a sense, uh, the whole situation was one, or you might almost call it of triple power, of treble power. Three uh, distinct uh, social groups, objectively struggling to establish their own state. The Brits, Dublin Castle, the bureaucracy appointed from outside, more than I think more than half of it being British, English, Scottish, Welsh, or Protestant, Irish, again, a few Catholics, but you know that was the, from that point of view running running the state ultimately in the interests of British imperialism. Then you have the uh, Irish bourgeoisie, initially at the, particularly the uh, petty bourgeoisie, farmers uh, struggling to get control of their, their own state. And finally, there are the workers overlapping sometimes with the bourgeoisie, but still the political aim of the bourgeoisie being different from the aims to were in the interests of the workers, and that the official leaders of the workers stated were the, their aims. How did that play out in Limerick? In Limerick, you have um, the British uh, uh, military authority, um, to a certain extent the RIC, though it was kept, uh, I think, to barracks during that period, but certainly the mi- military under General Christopher Griffin himself, I think, was a was a Catholic Irishman from Cork, but he was uh, wore the uh, uniform, and uh, you know he was acting general in the British Army. Um, he later became full general, but uh, and uh, they were determined to trying to uh, if they couldn't get the people who had killed the cops, and uh, uh, you know in trying to rescue Robert Byrne, uh, then they were going to punish uh, and make a, an example of Limerick. Then. You after that you have the representatives of the bourgeoisie. You have Alphonsus O'Mara, the mayor of Limerick. I think he was the first official Sinn Fein of any Irish city, uh, mainly because uh, his predecessor Stephen Quinn had been a big. Uh, Recruit have been um, with the Irish Party. He'd been a big recruiting sergeant for the mayor, and uh, the Brits had uh, decided to reward him with a knighthood, which he took, and um, you know that uh, smirched him. And they so they put in uh, Sinn Fein councillor O'Mara. O'Mara, very bourgeois, member of the Bacon Company, Bacon family. He wanted much more than uh, the Irish Party was able to. Uh, Produce, so that was how he was in Sinn Féin. And you have the b- bishop, Bishop Hallinan, very uh, quite moderate, but you know, still recognising that he was overshadowed by his uh, predecessor, the um, almost Republican Bishop Dwyer, who had died in 1916, and Hallinan was, uh, you know, ha- had to be pretty 
you know, follow to a great extent in his footsteps. Uh, if not, if he didn't, uh, presumably the offerings might be a bit less in the old plate. You know, these were the leaders of uh, bourgeois limerick. Basically, they did not want a strike, but they had to go along with it because it was uh, popular. They But they would show their hand towards the end. And then, of course, there's the Trades Council, the Soviet Council, almost the exact equivalent of the Soviets in Russia, how they started. There was a conflict over who, who, who truly ran the city. Yes, and who would be, who was to be, be in charge, yeah. Mm-hmm. The Soviet was set up. Um, the initiative came from the, the uh, within the Transport Union, which was uh, the most uh, probably the most revolutionary of, of the Irish unions. It had been set up by Larkin. It had had Connolly, of course, as its acting general secretary when Larkin went to the states. But it had only just come to Limerick uh, in 1917, and it was a sort of new uh, young members. Yeah, raring to go. And on top of this, there was, uh, you know, what the unions were, were to a great extent, were there for. There was the question of uh, living conditions. There was the question that uh, the war prices were, were now had risen by 150% during the war. There was, uh, had been a much slower, very much slower, if any, increase in wages. And this was particularly in one of the biggest uh, biggest industrial concerns in Limerick. That was the Cleave factory on the uh, north side of the River Shannon. The workers in the Cleaves Combine all got together and formed a council of action and went on strike. And um, the bosses uh, decided to uh, uh, give in to, to divide and rule, first of all, and they gave in to the demand, you know, to, took each factory by itself. And they gave in to the uh, demand, wage demands of the workers in the factory in, in, in Cleves, um, at Roman Gate. And um, they, but they also fire, then they fired the uh, shop steward there. And that started the workers to prepare for a strike. And then on top of this, came General Griffin's uh, decision to seal off the large part of Limerick. I say the large part because, of course, Limerick, as you will have been pointed out, uh, was in fact partitioned by the River Shannon. And Griffin um, put the northern side of the curfew area on the Shannon itself. He did this because... uh, there was a general fear at the time uh, of Bolshevism, he, and he didn't have enough uh, soldiers. Uh, if you look at the map, uh, uh, you'll you see that uh, the uh, city boundaries were distinctly uh, difficult to uh, patrol, would have been difficult to patrol with the amount of soldiers he had. I mean, he could have called to France, where there was the biggest British army uh, recorded at that time there, but a large part of them were conscripts, and uh, even those who were professionals had joined up partly in order to fight the Germans. They didn't want to come back and fight another war. There was a real danger of of a mutiny if they had done that. Later on, of course, uh, they would uh, recruit the most brutal elements of the of the army and turn them into a, a fry corps, what the Germans call a fry corps, the black and tans or the auxiliaries, and you know send them into Ireland willingly. But you know there just wasn't time to do that. So Griffin thought, 
Well, I do do it on a streamlined basis. You do take the River Shannon. But a large number of the 300 workers in Cleves lived in the main part of Limerick. And there was no, they had no no canteen there. They often wanted to go back to their homes for lunch. That meant they were stopped twice uh, um, going back into, uh, into Limerick. And this was a burden to them. So they got together... And they may, they were probably helped along by the TGWU organizer Sean Dowling, who was on also on the uh, Crate Council, and they called, they went on strike against this as much as against Cleve, and they went and then they sent a Dowling to the Trade Council to demand a general strike in Limerick, which they eventually got. From there, a general strike is declared very quickly. The question of food supplies comes on the agenda. Mm-hmm. So a committee is set up mm-hmm. that smuggles food in. Prices are set. Uh, um, uh, money comes onto the agenda. Yeah. So they issue their own currency. Uh, um, and so then, sum up, what was the situation in Limerick a week into the strike? It's difficult to say. I have seen the, uh, um, the, the prices uh, seemed cheap, but I'm not quite sure how they compared to the prices before and after the Soviet. Uh, they seemed to be uh, holding their own very well. They, and, of course, they were bringing stuff in. There was big support, uh, for, in, in, particularly in County Clare. You know, the stuff was smuggled in. in I'm sure you, you've been told this in various ingenious ways. The, in the, the horses. <laughs> yes, the horses. Horses without corpses. But yeah, exactly, yes. Politically... You had a contradiction, a week in. It was at a stalemate almost. Pretty well a, pretty well a stalemate. Uh, and, of course, it was... Uh, but uh, there, there was the thing that it was a general strike. There was a Soviet. And that this was being broadcast uh, by uh, newspaper men who were there. They were there over this uh, uh, transatlantic plan to fly the, the Atlantic. Um, uh, but they, this was a, this was obviously a scoop, and they duly scooped it and uh, passed it on. So you know, and this is 1919, just about just slightly later than 18 months before the Bolsheviks had taken power in Russia. People were scared, both the bourgeoisie in Limerick and the uh, uh, British military authorities and the British government. What they didn't fully realise was that the leadership of the Labour Party was a bit worried about it too. You you make a point which I thought was very insightful in the book, which was that there was this balance of powers and the situation either had to go forward or go back. Yeah. That was the problem, that the, the leadership nationally wasn't willing to go forward, if you know what I mean. Yes. What was the balance of forces in that sense, a week in? Well, the national bourgeoisie were pretty well um, marginalised, uh, in Limerick at least. Uh, it, you know, it wasn't October 1917 in Russia, it was about more like February uh, 1917. Trade Council was running the city, it was running the police, it was running uh, food, uh, uh, supplies, uh, everything. Uh, but uh, the it was still as it almost uh, under siege by the uh, British army, uh, as this uh, as one visitor said, uh, this is an odd rummy place here, Limerick. You have to get a um, 
a special pass to get into the place and then you have to get another special pass from another lot to get out of the place and that about sums it up. And then it began to unravel. Um, the momentum began to be lost. What, what happened? Well, they, they didn't weren't getting a lot of money to sustain their currency. That, that was a big problem. Uh, they, they knew that they would have to, um, the strike would have to spread. Uh, you know, it could have gone on uh, for even longer, perhaps for a week or so. But, but the big thing was they wanted a general strike, as had a national, national, nationwide general strike, as had happened over conscription the previous year. Uh, Johnson, who was the treasurer, he had organized the currency, uh, production of currency, um, and the, his colleagues on the executive of, of the Labour Party and Trade Union Congress wouldn't allow it, uh, you know, they weren't going to have it. Um, and uh, they refused, wouldn't call a, a special conference that might have uh, done it and um, agreed to such a strike. And instead, they, they, on the Wednesday, the second Wednesday of the strike, they brought forward the um, proposal, which Sinn Féin had actually made a a proposal for the um, evacuation of women and children from Limerick, uh, Johnson uh, expanded it to uh, demand the evacuation of the whole city of Limerick to places. And I doubt whether he really believed that the uh, uh, Trade Council would agree to it, but uh, I suspect he was uh, trying to let them down easily, uh, make it clear. But anyway, that was what happened. Uh, and they re rejected it. And once that was rejected, national bourgeoisie, the bourgeoisie moved in and got uh, an agreement for, to call off the call off the stoppage. And in a week, they would, uh, uh, if you know, if nothing else happened, military control would be lifted. For the first few weeks or so in the strike, you had this hope that the national trade union were going to, they were come, they were to come to Limerick, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but maybe if you could go through that side, that that, that delay. Well, there was this delay, um, and of course, some of the, they, many of them didn't come. For example, Foran, the president of the and uh, acting general secretary of the Trade uh, Place of the Transport Union, and uh, Bill O'Brien, who was then tr the treasurer of the Transport Union, they were expected to come. But they never did. But others, members of the less less officially militant members of the executive, did come. But uh, for example, the president, uh, he was based in Derry. He found reasons to stay in Derry for for a while. They played a waiting game really until they could uh, work out uh, a way to get out of uh, having a general strike. One of the first blows was when there was the a lack of support from the British. Trade unions. That was a big thing with, uh, I think it was uh, Bromley, who again, uh, supposedly a relative left winger, but he was in National Union of Railwaymen, and that was uh, under the dead hand of uh, Jimmy Thomas, uh, who of course uh, later reneged altogether from the Labour Party. They uh, said they weren't going to call out the railwaymen. That was would be the immediate the, the suggestion in any strike, but that might still have worked if uh, the Irish railway money and defiance, but they wouldn't have got any strike pay, of course. 
and then um, a stockman for the uh, uh, Congress uh, declared, uh, British TUC declared that um, it was a political strike and they, they weren't having any of it. And, and why was that significant? Well, it meant that uh, they weren't going to push the uh, affiliated union branches in, uh, in in Ireland to support it, to come out. Uh, I mean, they'd done that before. They hadn't be encouraged any support for the anti-conscription general strike either. But uh, they, you know, this time it was far more definite. Uh, I, there, there was, I think, a, a suspicion, I don't know, of, you know, sanctions if uh, a union tr- tried it on, though what they what they could do to it, uh, I don't know, know either. Fear of sanctions in what way? Well, they could sort of uh, threaten to disaffiliate uh, unions, of course. Mm. So that if an Irish union... If a, if, an, uh, if a union with branches in Ireland yeah. did that, yeah. Yeah, that, that, that they'd be, be recognised. So the British Union say it's a political strike, we're not going to support it, we're not going to give strike pay. Um, the Irish unions then, the, the, the leaders begin arriving and then they have this meeting. And just to go back, oh, I know you've already covered it, but just to, to go back over it, they then have this meeting between the, the, the Limerick Strike Committee or the Limerick Council of Trade Unions and the... Some of the leaders of the the national unions, yeah, and uh, what happens at that meeting? Well, Johnson puts the they and the others uh, national executive members put the the case uh, uh, that it, they don't think it's practicable uh, to have a general strike, and um, you know Johnson gave his case actually to the subsequent general meeting of of Car- Labour Party and Congress. Uh, you know, look, if we have a general strike, uh, soldier, the British Army will take over the railways and that will mean, you know, bloody war and uh, we're not, uh, you know, the uh, we're, we're just not ready, but we're not ready for a war that would mean a challenge for state power. Uh, I think we, we have to remember that uh, Johnson's idea was that the Congress should steadily build up its uh, strength of its affiliates until it was organised the, at least the majority of uh, Irish uh, workers uh, through them, um, you know, then it, it could uh, use Connolly's uh, strategy of breaking the shell of the uh, political state and take over. But you know that that was so far in the future. In believe it, he didn't. Re- I don't know that he fully realised that uh, you know what that the, the slow process that it would have worked before 1914, uh, had uh, been hastened by the revolutionary situation after 1916. Um, but, uh, and, you know, he was, so he was trying to hold back from that. But again, he he was supported generally, even people like uh, Sean Dowling, who had started the, uh, played a role in starting the strike, was on the tra- Soviet, or um, Walter Carpenter, who would later be the first general secretary of the Communist Party of Ireland, they support, were supporting this line at, at the time. They were hoping that they, that this would, that the general strike would happen. That was their their strategy, in a sense. That was their strategy. They thought, uh, I mean, their, their argument would have been uh, that uh, it had happened for the uh, uh, against conscription. Why not now? 
And so it sort of took the wind out of their sails a bit. It did. And then in that situation, the, the leaders of the Trades Council were knocked. And then the other forces, the, the mayor, the bishop, they swooped in. And, and Yeah, yeah, they sort of, while, uh, while the Trades Council was wondering what to do, they uh, took the initiative and compromised uh, the rather bad compromise solution uh, from, from the general. What were the details of that compromise that they proposed? The compromise was that the strike would end, and if a week after the end of the strike there was no more hassle or trouble, then uh, you know he would uh, graciously uh, withdraw the ban, the permit order. And the union, the unions agreed to that. The, the, the union's immediate uh, strategy had been to call off the strike for everyone who was not uh, didn't have to commute to work from the city to the uh, to outside. But then on the end of that week, uh, they called off the strike completely. And what was the response when they announced that that this is that we're going to call off the strike? What was the response from the strikers, from the workers? They didn't. A lot of them didn't like it. That's uh, you know. I mean, uh, you know, there were there a few people tearing uh, tearing down the proclamation. That I mean, I don't know how widespread it was, but it was reported. And but you also say that uh, something interesting happened at Cleves as well. Yes, indeed. They uh, it had at least, uh, shall we say, put a certain amount of manners on uh, the bosses and uh, your man. The shop steward was reinstated, and uh, the strike there, there. That strike was called off as well. Also, Cleves uh, began to gave de- reasonably decent wa- wa- wage increases around. Um, an exception, I think, uh, w- w- where they they underestimated the demand in in Knocklong, and a year later, of course, there came the famous occupation of Knocklong Creamery. Uh, that's another story, and. So that's that's the mechanics of how, if you want to call it betrayal or whatever, I don't know if you would. Um, that's that's how it worked. I would. But but why why didn't the national trade unions? What were they, what was the thinking? Why didn't they expand it? Well, because um, they didn't really have the perspective. Um, everybody was agreed. Everybody, even before nineteen six, Connolly was agreed that the trade union movement was too small. In uh, at the nineteen sixteen Congress meeting after uh, the rising, just under half the delegates came from Dublin. The transport union was a u- a union or only organised in mainly coastal towns. I mean, it had a branch; it had established a branch in Killarney, but even that was fairly close to the coast. Uh, but you know, and and even then, these towns, you know. In a in a an anti-clockwise direction, they stretched from Tralee round to Sligo. No branch in Limerick. No branch in Limerick came in 1917. No branch in Galway. Attempt to build a branch in uh, Tipperary, which had fallen through in 1915. But you know, and that was that was about it. That gives you some idea that uh, you know they they were not they felt they were not ready. And as I say, Connolly wanted to 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 expand it. Tom Johnson wanted to expand it, but they would were inclined to with their strategy for expanding it 
was different. Connolly was so wanted active action, uh, even to the point of allying with uh, what he what he hoped would be a, a war stopping action in you know, 1916. Uh, Johnson, traditional, step by step, build, organize, uh, you know, and continue. The whole idea was within a syndicalist uh, organizational context. Nobody, nobody had was suggesting until about ninety, till just after the Limerick Soviet, that there should be an independent, activist body, you know, Bolshevik style, if you like, but even even social democratic style. Nobody believed in that. So, so what is what is syndicalism? That you uh, organize the um, in the industri in industrial unions in or in or as Johnson thought in through Congress itself, and that uh, by sheer weight of organized numbers you can be in a position to once you have enough n members possibly you will be able to take state power to smash the. Uh, the shell of the political state, Connolly put it. That was basically the idea that you struggle, uh, of struggle. Connor Johnson rather, as it were, um, gilded the idea by sort of linking it to a more, a more traditional trade union strategy, but he, he himself believed, uh, believed at the time that uh, there was no need for a political a distinct political homogenous body to lead them. The, 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 they totally ignored the need for uh, sort of the fact that uh, you know a lot of these guys were in uh, who joined or in who joined would have been supporting even supporting the war and supporting the um, or at least supporting the Irish Party. I'm going to just move on to just to the lessons for today that kind of thing. Well, of course, the basic lesson is that you need a revolutionary party. Nowadays, I think, uh, if anything, uh, there will almost seem to be too many claimants to the throne of revolutionary party. But, uh, you know, that doesn't mean that uh, it is bad, only that uh, if there's a good idea, people latch on to it. Uh, on the other hand, you, it will be in, in the manner, almost, of currently, that there will be have to, to be... Uh, a strong organization working class of workers in um, in unions or possibly in uh, trade workers councils will uh, that that is and that they will will have to come together to overthrow the st the, uh, the state having said that the problem is that the union leaderships are sort of extremely conservative and they tend to act I've noticed uh, when anyone sort of gets a bit too radical to uh, duly uh, discipline such a person, and you know, I've seen it time and again. Um, so it, it has to, it, at the same time, it has to be outside uh, the union leadership. On top of this, there's the case of immigrant workers. They are not are not being adequately. They do not seem to be adequately organised, and instead, some bodies uh, I was uh, I, sho I was shocked uh, I think I was up in Belfast uh, a few months ago and there was this guy uh, from the CP going on about uh, the about the problem of 
how of immigrant of immigration that uh, how the the, the uh, successive government should have dealt with the problem firmly, and he didn't mean organise the immigrants. He mean stop immigration. Uh, but do do you think that there's what what are the lessons from this period and from how the unions managed to organise so rapidly? Are there any lessons there for us today? I, I mean, we obviously are not in the same situation. There was the there was it was a revolutionary situation in Ireland. By uh, you know, like or not, we don't have that. It's a that is, we could only you know it is almost uh, the Tom Johnson thing of building slowly. But but the important thing is to try and uh, and uh, organize and organize militantly. Organize as the nurses uh, are doing today. I was at this meeting. I mentioned uh, this meeting on uh, the democratic program. And uh, in a rather disgraceful, disgraceful performance of uh, of ego display of egotism, uh, Jack Connor spoke for for you know nearly half an hour about uh, defending his record. But he was saying that he, you know, he had tried to organise a general strike in 2010 and nobody wanted to know about it. But uh, you know, the point was that he hadn't been doing very much to sort of raise the question of the general strike before then. It was all sort of, you know, partnership and negotiations uh, and uh, and that. And for for those who look at the Limerick Soviet and think, this is excellent, this shows that there is a different way of organising. It doesn't have to be, we don't need the bosses, they need us. Um, and I'd like to see something like that. Mm-hmm. I'd like to see society like that. Uh, um but they also want to know, want to, don't want to repeat the mistakes of a hundred years ago. Want to make sure that we this time we win. Um, what are the lessons for for, for 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 those of us like that? Well, I'd say uh, if you're not in a union, join it. Join also join a party that claims to be revolutionary. And if it doesn't get the hell out of it quickly, but there's another party that really is revolutionary. And uh, in that party, agitate for a, at least a united front of all revolutionary parties and uh, uh, groupings. And on that base, try and work towards repeat of the general strikes and Soviets of that period. Oh, yes, and of course... Uh, don't be afraid to read and find out five things for yourself. Uh, agita- agitation is great, but uh, you want to know what you're agitating about and uh, you know in what direction you're agitating. You lost 